was good. Uh, well, I'm glad you guys came back this week. Because last week, last week, this is called Tough Issues this week. And we started last week with a tough issue, um, tackling a lot of, uh, tackling a topic that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, and that was the topic of lust. Uh, Jesus had gone through some secret sins, talking about anger, and then moving on to lust. And for some reason, uh, we feel justified at times when we're angry. That we've been offended in some way, and so that, you know, because of that beef, we have a right to be angry. But Jesus totally exposes that, and then he moves on uh, to the topic of lust, which every Christian knows, right, is wrong. Like, we could all agree that lust is wrong. Um, and though it's more pervasive among men, I address the men, I also address the women too, because not only is lusting a sin, right, but causing to lust, on purpose at least, um, is a sin. And Jesus is saying, you better deal with that attitude that's inside of you, because if you don't, that thought is going to lead to a desire, which is going to lead to an action, and it's going to give birth to sin, and then ultimately to death. Um, are we winning the battle of our thoughts, right? Because that's where it starts. Uh, we're not ignorant of how the devil works. We're not ignorant of his schemes. He does not have a lot of things in his playbook because, unfortunately, the things that he does have been working for a long time. And if we don't take that thought captive when it pops in there, if we don't make it obedient to Christ, then we're going to walk right into a trap. And that's what I had titled last week, that it's a trap. Um, the devil is a liar and he is a murderer, and he lies to us in saying that fulfilling that lust, that evil desire that we have, is going to be okay. It's not going to hurt anyone. But he's also a murderer in that when we take action steps on that, it's going to destroy us personally and our relationships as a result of that. He's after our soul. But because we're not ignorant of his schemes, we need to have a plan. Because when we don't have a plan, we're going to fail. right? And we can wield the sword of the Spirit. We can wield the Scriptures to fight against the devil. But... Only if we believe it and we're submitted to it. Otherwise, it's just words, right? You have to be submitted to it to be able to wield it effectively. Then we have to refocus. This is a recap of last week. We have to refocus our minds. We have to replace that thought with something else. Um, he said, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good repute, good report, right? Think on these types of things. We have to get that out of our mind and think about godly things. And then lastly, we need to pray, right? We absolutely need to pray and pray for God's sovereign sway in our lives, that he would turn our hearts away from evil. David said, I've heard, I have hidden your word in, our, in my heart that I may not sin against you. Um, and then also, you know, in the Lord's prayer, you know, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. So we pray that God would lead us in that direction. So, we need to win the battle of our mind. Um, otherwise, that thought is going to go from here to here pretty quickly. But if we hide his word in our heart, it can go from here to here just as fast. So we got to have that. Okay, last week I mentioned that the wonderful yet terrifying part of preaching verse by verse is that we don't get to skip over parts that make us uncomfortable or that might be difficult. Last week was uncomfortable. This week is difficult. It is. This is a difficult topic. Um, we're talking about a topic that affects well over half of American households, and that is the topic of divorce. Um, now, before we get started, before we get started, I want to say a couple things. First of all, it is of utmost importance that we have an accurate biblical worldview. 
We have to have an accurate biblical uh, worldview. And by that, I mean that we view the world through the lens of Scripture. When we have questions, when we have doubts about things that we see or experience, we need to ask ourselves, what does it say in God's Word? Because if we don't, we're going to be way off base. Uh, I heard a research study this week by the Barna Research Group just came out talking about Christians and their biblical worldview. This is what came out of it. American households that have children 13 years and younger in the household, only 2% have an accurate biblical worldview. Okay, that's shocking. This is even more so. Of American pastors, 37% only, only 37% have an accurate biblical worldview. Pastors and Youth pastors, children's pastors, the ones that are raising up the next generation of Christians, only 13% of youth pastors and children's pastors have an accurate biblical worldview. That means that we believe this Bible from cover to cover and we align our lives with it. Because what's happened, unfortunately, among churches, pastors, is that they let, they develop their own opinions, they develop their own biases, what they think. In, re- in regards to the world, instead of allowing their life and their worldview to be affected by Scripture. So, unfortunately, the number of people who read this book and believe it from cover to cover is becoming quite few. So, we need to have an accurate worldview. Secondly, I want to point out that every single one of us is a great sinner, and we're all in need of a great Savior. Um, The point of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is giving is nobody can measure up to God's standards. Nobody can do it. You're all falling short. Somebody needs to stand in the gap. Somebody needs to bridge the gap between the Father and us, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can span the gap. That's why we call it the gospel. The gospel means good news. That's the good news. For there to be good news, there has to be bad news. The bad news is we're all great sinners in need of a great Savior. That's why it's called good news. Every single one of us is guilty, but that's why we have a great Savior. So here is our portion of Scripture for this week. Matthew 5, this is only two verses today, starting in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus, this was a very blunt message in that day. Two verses is all he spends on it. But this is a very blunt message in our culture today as well. Obviously, we know about 50% of, divorce, of marriages end in divorce. This is a serious issue in our day, but it was in their day as well. And Jesus was never one to shy away from challenging the social norms. And we shouldn't either. We shouldn't be those that are shy of challenging social norms. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples arrive in this area uh, called Judea, just beyond the River Jordan. And if you remember, Jesus had a famous cousin who used to live in that area around the Jordan. He used to dunk people in there, and he was called John the Baptist. That's what he was called. He used to live in that area. But unfortunately, John had been jailed. He had been put in prison because he had been condemning the King Herod for his adultery, for his divorcing his wife and for stealing his brother Philip's wife. And John was being very vocal about this, so he got imprisoned, and eventually it cost him his life cost him his life speaking out against 
This king who wasn't really a king, he was put in place by Rome. He wasn't even Jewish, but they had set him up there. John was speaking out against him, speaking on the sanctity of marriage, and it cost him his life. Now, most kings don't like to be told that they're living in sin. That didn't go very well. So keep that in your mind as the backdrop for what's about to happen. Jesus walks into this region and people see him and people start to gather and flock around him. Uh, Everywhere that Jesus went, people just started to gather. And it says, as was his custom, he started to teach them. So when people flocked around Jesus, he took that opportunity to teach. But wherever the crowds were, the Pharisees and the scribes were not far behind. They were there as well to try to test Jesus. They were constantly trying to trip him up, trying to catch him in his words, say something that would get him in trouble. And this was no exception. So turn with me to Mark chapter 10, if you have your Bibles. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You've all heard that verse before, I'm sure, if you've ever been to a wedding. The Pharisees came to test Jesus. How were they testing him? Well, the Pharisees were religiously motivated, but they were also politically motivated. See, they're in that area that's ruled by King Herod. John lost his head by speaking out and condemning divorce and adultery. So once again, they're trying to put Jesus in a hard place. They're trying to put him in a difficult situation. Would he speak out against divorce and adultery, because that might get back to Herod. But Jesus answers their question with a question. I love this. I do it too often. But he answers their question with a question. But what, what did Moses command you? Now, Jesus knows, this is so masterful, because he knows where they're going to go with this. He knows what they're going to quote, and he's leading them there for a reason. And they quote Deuteronomy 24. This is what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, Then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination to the Lord. Now, in that day, basically if he divorces her, he sends her away, she marries somebody else. If that guy dies or he's tired of her too and decides to divorce her, the first husband can't take her back at that point. She's already been married to another guy. The Pharisees had two schools of thought on this. Some followed the teachings of a guy, of a rabbi named Shammai. And what he did is he had a very conservative interpretation of this verse. When it says indecency, that's also translated uncleanness. And he translated rightly that if there was sexual immorality, if there was adultery in that relationship, then a man had the right to divorce his wife, to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away. This was actually a divine concession on God's part. 
Because the law stated that if someone was caught in adultery, the penalty was death. They were to be stoned. And so God allowed this. Just think about Mary and Joseph, right? When Mary came back from Elizabeth and she was quite clearly pregnant, Joseph could have accused her and everyone would have stoned her to death. But it says because Joseph was a righteous man, he determined to divorce her quietly, to put her away quietly. He was just going to give her a certificate, send her away, and do it that way. But the other school of thought came from a a rabbi by the name of Hillel, and he had a very liberal interpretation of this scripture. And he took this word uncleanness and gave it a huge, broad meaning. And he said that you could divorce your wife if she embarrassed you in some way, if she embarrassed you in front of other people. He also took it all the way to say that if she burnt your toast in the morning, if she did anything to embarrass you or to make you angry, that made her now unclean to you. And that gave you grounds for divorce based on Deuteronomy 24. This became a widely accepted practice in their day, unfortunately. Now, Moses said you had to give her a legal document. Why is that? So that if another man wanted to marry her, legally she could prove that she was available. Otherwise, it would be adultery. This was actually a protection because women didn't have a lot of options. They didn't have any rights in that day. And so to provide for themselves, they either had to live with a family member, they had a husband, or unfortunately, a lot of women turned to prostitution as a means of just trying to stay alive. There weren't a lot of options. So this was a divine concession and protection so that the women could go and get married again. That's the reason why divorce was a huge deal. In Jesus's day, this was the prevailing ideology. The Pharisees that were liberal, they, you know, controlled everything. And so people were just divorcing their wives left and right for any reason. Another rabbi would come along actually and take it so far as to say, if you found another woman that was prettier than your wife, your other wife was now unclean to you and you had grounds to divorce her because you found somebody else who was more clean or more decent. So this is, this is the backdrop when they come to talk to Jesus. This is their thinking. And so if he condemns divorce, it's going to get back to Herod, right? He'll take care of Jesus, just like he took care of John, who was such a problem to us. Maybe it'll get back. But if he takes the liberal stance, if he takes our side with this, that's not going to jive real well with his message of forgiveness and love, not to mention all the women that funded his ministry, right? That's not going to go. So they're trying to put him in a tough spot. Now, anyone who's been to a wedding, as I mentioned, has heard those last three verses. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, no man separate. Um, why are those verses quoted? This is in the context, right, of them asking them about divorce. And Jesus says these verses, and those are the ones that we read at the altar, because this is God's intended plan for marriage, right? Nobody enters into marriage with the intention of becoming divorced, not unless you live in Hollywood, okay? They have places where they can rent wedding, wedding rings. They don't, they don't buy them. They will rent wedding. That seems like a big red flag right there. If you're renting your wedding ring, that's a red flag. So the Pharisees start talking to Jesus about what Moses said back in Deuteronomy, but Jesus takes them back even further, back to Genesis, back to what God said. We call this, if you want context in the Bible, you go back to where it is first mentioned. It's kind of the principle of first mention. Go all the way back. So Jesus knows that they're going to go to Deuteronomy, knows they're going to go to Moses, and he says, that's good. Let me take you all the way back to what God said. There's a, there's a saying that I like that says, if it's true, it ain't new. And if it's new, it ain't true. If it's true, it ain't new. If it's new, it ain't true. 
Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning. Just as a side note here, a lot of people leave out verse 6. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God created them male and female. That's important in our day. Since he's taken them all the way back to the beginning, what God said, that's important to note. Marriage was God's idea. He created it. He created one man and one woman to come together and become one flesh, inseparable. And that's not just talking about sex. It's talking about the way God views married couples. Oneness is a big deal to God. The Jewish people would pray, our God is one, is inseparable, right? Oneness is a big deal. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, was praying to the Father, and he said, I pray that they would be one just as we are one. Oneness is a big deal to the Father. <clears throat> marriage is to be a visual, visual demonstration to the world of our relationship to God, what that should look like. This is how marriage should function. This is how our relationship with the Father should function. A desire to love each other and serve each other and bring, bring glory to God in the process. And since oneness was designed to be permanent, that's why it causes so much damage when it's taken apart. So God uses the analogy of marriage all throughout the Bible to describe his kingdom and how our relationship with him should work. Uh, and he started with Israel. Now we know that the church, the church is called the bride of Christ. Jesus is our bridegroom and we have been betrothed to him if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your savior. And one day he's coming back to get us. And we are going to have a seven year honeymoon in heaven. It's called the marriage feast of the lamb when we go there. And he's going to come back and take us with him. But it started out with Israel. Um, God had a figurative bride and it was Israel. Um, the covenant that he made with the people was often was compared to a marriage covenant. But Israel, as we know, fell into this repeated pattern of walking away from Jehovah and chasing after other gods. A lot of the prophets even used the phrase that Israel ran off to chase other gods and she played the harlot, the prostitute, basically, chasing after other gods. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now, why does he say that he was their husband? Because the group of people whose name literally meant governed by God, that's what Israel means, governed by God, walked out on him. They broke covenant. They became unfaithful to him. And listen to what God did. This is in Jeremiah 3, verse 8. She, that is the nation of Judah, saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the harlot. Now, I... Do not remember reading that, honestly, until I saw that this week, that God had given Israel a certificate of divorce. Why would he do that? Why would God give Israel a certificate of divorce? Well, what was the penalty for adultery? It was death, right? He could have wiped Israel off the map. He could have said, I'm actually, at one point, he almost did. He told Moses, he said, stand back, Moses. I am going to completely destroy this people. They are so adulterous. I will start over with you. And Moses interceded for the people, and God relented. He turned from his wrath because Moses prayed for the people. Now, remember I said this is a divine concession that the person caught in adultery might find mercy 
and not be destroyed, may not be killed or stoned. Remember the woman that was caught in adultery? The Pharisees grabbed the woman who was caught in adultery and dragged her before Jesus. I'm not sure how that worked out, that they caught her in the act. That's what they said. They said, we caught this woman in the act. How? How is that possible? Unless it was a setup. They dragged her before Jesus and said, Moses says that we should stone her, that we should kill her. What do you say? And Jesus was writing in the ground. I can't wait to find out what he was writing in the dirt in front of those guys. But whatever he wrote when he said, those who have no sin cast the first stone, and they all dropped their rocks and walked away. Jesus had mercy on this woman and said, listen, go and sin no more. I'm not condemning you. What I am telling you is to leave that life, repent, turn around, and go live differently. That's the kind of mercy that we find. But he didn't wipe Israel out. He gave her a certificate of divorce, and she went away to Babylon, sent her away to Babylon. Um, the ultimate exclamation point on their rejection of God was when they told Pilate, we will not have this man rule over us. Take him away and crucify him. So they rejected God. They rejected the Father, sent him away to Babylon for 70 years. Then they reject Jesus. And they are going to be going through the worst persecution that this world has ever seen during the tribulation. That is the price they're going to pay for rejecting their Savior. And uh, just when it looks like they're going to be wiped out, I want to say this. God is not through with the Jewish people. He's not through with Israel. He is going to redeem them. Right about the time it looks like they're going to be wiped out and the countries of the world are closing in on Israel, Jesus is going to come back at that time. We're going to be with him, by the way. That's going to be cool. And he is going to obliterate all of the nations that are closing in on Israel and he's going to save them. He's going to redeem his bride at the end of time. But it's only going to be a remnant that's going to be saved. But they're going to have to go through the tribulation. And that is going to be what wakes them up. That's what's going to pull the veil back from their eyes. And they realize what they've done and who they rejected. And they're going to come back to the Lord. They rejected Jesus because of their hardness of heart. Divorce always involves a hardening of the heart. It could be a specific event or it could be things that happen over time. But it's always a hardening of the heart and an unwillingness to forgive. Both people, by the way, have to be willing to work on the marriage. Both people have to be willing to forgive and to do the hard work of reconciliation. If both people aren't in it to win it, so to speak, then it's not going to work out. You say, Nathan, I can't just forgive them. You don't know what they've done. Forgiveness is not the same as acceptance. Let me say that. Forgiveness is not the same as acceptance. It's not saying that it's okay. It's basically, it's taking your foot off their neck and your right for revenge is what it's doing. That's what forgiveness is. It's saying, you know what? I'm giving up my right to take revenge on you. I'm going to put it in God's hands. I forgive you. Think about how much we've been forgiven of. And God says, if you don't forgive, I can't forgive you. That's a scary verse. If we have hatred in our heart, if we have unforgiveness in our heart, we can't be forgiven. Forgiveness does not mean acceptance, but it does mean that we're putting it in God's hand. And both people have to be willing to work on the relationship. That doesn't happen if there's not forgiveness. It's the death of the relationship. Ironically, the way to save the marriage is for both people to die individually before the relationship dies. Each person individually has to die before the relationship dies. What do I mean by that? 
Jesus says in Luke 9, whoever wants to be his disciple has to pick up their cross daily and follow him. That means that daily we have to lay our lives down. We have to crucify our flesh, our pride, our selfishness. And that means that in marriage, you no longer live for your own happiness. You live for your spouse's happiness and bring glory to God in the process. What we're supposed to be doing is showing the world this is how God loves us. He laid his life down for us, his life down for us. We need to lay our lives down for our spouses, for our families. Paul writes this in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now it goes on to say, wives submit to your husbands in the Lord, right? And a lot of men use this to kind of bully their wives into doing them what they want, but These men didn't read the verses right before that that said, men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Crucify yourself. Because if a man is following Jesus, if he's laying down his life for his bride, she's not going to have a problem submitting to his leadership. But when we harden our hearts, we become selfish, we become prideful. That can lead to the death of the marriage. Divorce teaches us more about the nature of mankind than marriage does. Divorce teaches us more about the content of man's character than it does about the institution that God created. It talks, to, it talks about our brokenness. Divorce speaks to our brokenness. We're sinful, selfish people. All of us are sinful, selfish people. But God is in the redeeming and restoring business. That's the good news, that God is in the redeeming and restoring business. Uh, he specializes in bringing life out of death in bringing beauty out of ashes. That's what he specializes in. Um, I, I was thinking of a video that I put together and I wanted to show it today. It's a little bit long. It's like 10 minutes, but it speaks directly to the point that I want to make. And so I'm going to show it right now. Let's go ahead and watch. You know... When the door opened, I honestly hoped it was a thief or a murderer come to put me out of my misery. Sorry to disappoint you, but there's something I need from you first. (coughs) Your hair is matted and your face is red. Why? No, why? If you came back to live with me, you could go to the well with the other women in the cool of the morning. You're wrong about that. I could go with them if I had stayed with Ramin. Out with it. How much do you need? I'm not here for money. They've brought a bill of divorce. All you need to do is sign it. Only a man can divorce his wife, not the other way around, Putina. Which is why the certificate is in your name, Ryan. On what grounds am I to divorce you? I'm living with another man. So what? That's all you did with me, living. You knew why I married you. Stability. 
Shine war of quick, didn't The Pentateuch makes provision for a husband to divorce his wife if she lies with another man. Listen to you talking about Pentateuch. What do I have to do? Bring him here? Yes. I want to see the latest shade of drooling tomcat you put your spell on. Harry. Before he gets bored, like the others. Will you sign it or not? Give it here. No. Please. Please. You're my property, Fotina. I don't part lightly with my possessions. Give me a drink. Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come at noon in the heat. So you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd, I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Wrong story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. 
prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. <sighs> exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him, even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with, but you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know. But not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ.
tell everyone? I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon. Just the heart. <laughs> you promise. I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> You forgot your arm. Gets me choked up. <laughs> he said, I came here just for you. I'm here. When you're here, you're in shame. You're here in the middle of the day because you are in shame. But I'm here just for you. That's incredible. Five husbands and the man she was living with right then wasn't her husband. This wasn't condemnation. These were just the facts. But Jesus is greater than her past, greater than her track record. He stepped into that situation to change her. Goes on to say, as she did, that she was running into town to tell everybody that she had found the Messiah. This was in Samaria, by the way. Jews hated Samarians. That's why she said, why are you talking to me? Jews hated Samaria. They wouldn't even step into Samaria. But Jesus can go where nobody else can go. And he can, you know, minister to where no one else can minister. He's in the redeeming and the restoring business. How so? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 21, where it says that if a woman leaves, gets divorced and leaves her husband, and if the second husband divorces her, he dies, the first husband can't take her back. So that begs the question, if God gave Israel a certificate of divorce, how is he going to receive her back? Some of the prophets in the Old Testament did some pretty weird things. God asked them to do some strange things, and it didn't make sense, but they were obedient, and the people of their day thought that they had lost it. They didn't always get the message. Let me say, I can relate to that. One of those prophets was a guy named Hosea, and Hosea had a really tough assignment. God wanted to illustrate his love for his people, but he also needed to illustrate their unfaithfulness when they ran away into idolatry. So here's what he said to Hosea. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, he said, go and take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And if we skip down to verse six, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord, their God. I will not save them by the bow or the sword or the war or horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And he said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. That's a pretty tough assignment. That's rough for the kids, too. <laughs> Three children, all of them are given strange names. Some commentators believe that the firstborn, the son, was Hosea's, but the second two were born by these adulterous affairs. They're the ones that are named No Mercy, and You're Not My People. 
she would run off, Gomer would run off from Hosea and visit her former clients, her former lovers. So she kept running away, and Hosea had to bring her back. He was kind to her. He provided for her, just like God provided for the people. Both Gomer and the Jewish people kept running away. At one point, Hosea actually has to go and purchase her back for 15 shekels of silver. Imagine the humiliation as he has to go in town and everybody's watching him buy his wife back because she keeps running off and having affairs with other men. God says, this is what you're doing to me. This is the illustration. This is how you treat me. And yet this is how I treat you. I keep bringing you back each time. But how can God take Israel back? I mean, it's in the law. You either give her a decree of divorce or she's wiped out. She's destroyed. Well, let's go back to 1 Peter 2.10 for some interesting uh, insight on God's plan. Peter says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Once you were not my people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is hearkening all the way back to Hosea. And it's important to note here that Peter is writing to the Jewish people. He's writing to the Jewish people that are in the dispersion, that are through the empire. That's his audience. And he's telling these people that have been divorced by God, you are now his people once again because you have received mercy. So what's the difference? What changed that he could be able to take them back? It was Jesus. It was his sacrifice on the cross. That was the mercy that they received. Now there's grace and there's mercy and there's forgiveness. Life where there was death. Regardless of what's in your past or what you might be facing today, God wants your heart. That's what he's looking at. And we serve a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises even when we're unfaithful. But if we repent and we turn from our sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that word in the Greek, all, it means all. It means all of it. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's the hope of every single person sitting in here today that calls Jesus Christ their Savior. He's going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we should be as excited as the woman at the well was. She said, I'm going to go tell everybody. And this is from John 4. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believed, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We can show Jesus to the world and illustrate that through godly marriages. If you've been through a divorce, you can illustrate and show Jesus to the world through his forgiveness, through his faithfulness, and you can show Jesus to the world. Yes, God hates divorce, but he hates all sin, all sin, and his desire is for your heart. So don't let your heart be hardened. My goal today was not to shame anyone. Uh, We all fall short of the glory of God. And uh, I probably didn't answer all the questions that you might have. I'm happy to talk about uh, that later, but... What I wanted to express is that he is after your heart and he's bigger than your past, all your mistakes, anything that has happened, anything that's going to happen. He has forgiven you for every sin you've ever done, are doing, or ever will do. That is the great Savior. That I give you my worship, you still deserve it.